The Gospel of Mark, chapter 2. We are continuing in our series entitled Amazed, going through the Gospel of Mark, a wonderful account of Christ, his life and ministry, an account that's really intended to amaze us and through that to beckon us to follow Christ. So we're making our way through this as a church, verse by verse, section by section. And today we're looking at verses 18 through 22. This is a, a section where Jesus teaches really about the difference that he brings to the worship of God. This, this passage brings truth that really has massive implications for us and how we understand and how we relate to God. A little background before we read and, and pray. Uh, Jesus is going to be talking about the Pharisees and John the Baptist and his disciples. So a little background on them. Uh, I've talked before. The Pharisees were this group of very devout uh, Jewish worshipers. They were very serious about obeying the laws of God and to the point where they actually added a lot of extra laws to make sure that they never in some way disobeyed the core laws. So they were very strict, very devout. They would fast twice a day, I mean twice a week, uh, and they're very serious about the Lord. John the Baptist was a prophet that preceded Jesus, and he came to really prepare God's people for Jesus' ministry. And so he proclaimed uh, a baptism of repentance, basically calling God's people to, to freshly repent and turn to God, and to symbolize that fresh dedication through baptism, through immersion in water. Uh, and that was a powerful symbol for the people at the time. He was very, he lived a very simple life, a very devout life, and, and called people to, to similar type of devotion to the Lord. And he had followers who followed after him in the same lifestyle. And that lifestyle involved fasting as well as a, as a way to express devotion to God. So that's some background behind this particular section we're going to read, verses 18 to 22, to help you appreciate what Jesus is saying and what he's teaching us. Before we read that, let's pray and ask the Lord himself to speak to us this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage. And I, Lord, I thank you for your plans to speak to your people through it. Lord, you have plans to speak to specific individuals this morning through this passage. I thank you, Lord, that, that you are the living God and that your word is living and active. And I ask you, Lord, to help me to serve you and to serve your people. I pray, Lord, that through uh, your grace and the gift of, of preaching and teaching, Lord, that I could serve you and your precious people well. Lord, that you yourself would speak to us. You would build us up in you. You'd renew us and refresh us. You'd bring fresh conviction and fresh faith and power as well, Lord, that we could go from this place renewed in you and renewed in our mission to follow and to call others to the same. We thank you and ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Verses 18 through 22 in Mark chapter 2. Read along with me. If you have your Bible, I think we have it projected as well. It says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? 
As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. God's Word, Mark 2, 18 to 22. I have, or actually Peg has, an aunt, her great aunt, who turned 100 last month. Can you believe that? She was born in the year 19... 13? Good. I knew it. I just wanted to see if anyone was following. And if you think about her life, she was born before automobiles were common, when many homes didn't have electricity or phones, and some didn't have running water. Things like vacuum cleaners and washing machines were really for the rich. There were no airplanes flying overhead, and few, if any, paved roads underneath. There certainly were no televisions, no internet, no cell phones, and no video games to play. How did they survive? <laughs> they did just fine. But it was really different in 1913. Can you imagine what life has been like for Aunt Edith? The massive technological and social change that has occurred in her lifetime. Just as it's hard for us to imagine life without these things, it would have been really hard for those in 1913 to imagine life with all these things. There was massive technological change. This passage today, Jesus is speaking about massive change. The same sort of massive change that Edith experienced, but it's not technological. It's a spiritual change. It's a spiritual revolution that Jesus brings as he arrives on the scene. That's what this passage is about. It's about this simple truth that Jesus has come and everything is new. Jesus has come and with him everything is new. So let's dig in and learn about that. And those are the two points I want to make this morning. Very simply, Jesus has come and what that means and everything is new. This passage begins in verse 18 with this description of John's disciples and the Pharisees who were fasting. These two groups were fasting. It was a regular part of their, of their worship of God to fast. Fasting is basically abstaining from food. And spiritual fasting is abstaining from food as, a, as an expression of earnestness to God. It's, it's basically saying, I'm, I'm abstaining because I want to express earnestness for you. Now, basically, Lord, you're more important. important. Your ways are more important than food itself. So it's an expression of earnestness. And for the Pharisees and for John's disciples, this was a regular thing that they did. For John's disciples especially, it would have been an expression of repentance. It would have been an expression of sorrow, saying that, that we're sorry for our sins and we're turning to the Lord. We're longing for God. The Pharisees probably was more in terms of just devotion, expressing some sort of religious devotion to the Lord. But the thing is, is that Jesus and his disciples are not fasting. These guys are fasting regularly. We, we know from elsewhere in Scripture and from history that the Pharisees fasted two days a week. 
they had, I think it was what, Tuesdays and Fridays or Mondays and Thursdays. There was a, spe a special day, two days that they did it every week. And yet Jesus and his disciples are not fasting, so they come just wondering. Now, we don't know whether uh, they were upset, uh, John's disciples and the Pharisees or whomever brought the question in particular was upset. I don't think necessarily so. They were curious because it was so normal for them to fast. And yet they looked at Jesus and his disciples and they didn't fast. They didn't practice this regularly. So they come to Jesus and they ask the question. And the answer that Jesus gives is very eye-opening. It's very eye-opening how he responds to this. It's, it's really a response that I'm sure they didn't expect at all. They perhaps would have expected some other sort of response, but Jesus' Jesus's response is really profound. He says, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. And so this metaphor, this picture of a, of a wedding. And if you go to a wedding, it's a celebration. To go to a wedding is, is a celebration of of the couple's marriage. And in that day, actually, the weddings were much, a much bigger celebration than our weddings. Our weddings, uh, just was at a wedding last weekend. Um, it, it started, what, at, at 5, I think? The wedding started at 5, um, 5.30. And, uh, and then we, you know, we did the ceremony, then we had a meal, and then we went home. You know, it was just an evening, basically. Well, these guys, when they would do a wedding, it was a multi-day celebration. And there was a whole process in their wedding celebration where uh, well, first off, the, years before the wedding itself, the families uh, would, would basically arrange for the couple to be betrothed to one another. And that was actually considered the same as, as marriage, except they weren't quite married yet. Um, they, they were promised to each other. It was taken very seriously, but they didn't enjoy uh, marriage yet. It was very serious. So that went on years before. But then when the time came, once, once the, the man basically had a, uh, had a career and had a, a price a, a money to offer basically the family he was ready to get married and but then it was still an elaborate celebration and it would involve basically him going with his a wedding party to the house of the bride and then escorting her with her bridesmaids to his house or his family's house and there would be a celebration that night uh, but they would sleep in separate rooms they weren't married yet then the next day, there was more celebration. And then at dinner time, they would have basically a, an exchange of a marriage contract over dinner. Um, and then there'd be more feasting, and then the, the couple would be officially married. But the wedding didn't end that after that. They would, you know, they would uh, retire to the bridal chamber and so forth. But the next day, there'd be more celebrating. And it could go on for a whole week, a whole week. Can you imagine? Imagine having a wedding. Uh, dads who have girls, imagine having a, paying for a, a week-long wedding, um, a wedding celebration. Imagine friends of those who have been married taking a whole week off from work to go to a wedding. That's, that's what they did back then. It was a big, huge celebration. So Jesus uses this metaphor to explain why they don't fast. It would be inappropriate to fast at a wedding, right? You wouldn't go to a wedding. It's a celebration. And, and when the bridegroom is there and, and things are getting underway, you're not fasting. You're eating, you're enjoying, you're celebrating with them. And, and so that, you know, that is an explanation, but that's not the whole thing that Jesus is saying. He's not just saying, well, it's just like a wedding somehow, you know, and you, you don't fast at weddings, you don't fast with me. No, no, he says something much more profound than that. He's saying that there's a wedding of sorts going on, and I'm the bridegroom. Jesus is asserting that he is the bridegroom, that he, that he is person 
That's the wedding is about, with the bride. He's putting himself at the center. And he's not saying that he's just any old bridegroom and this is any old wedding. He's actually, when he says that I'm the bridegroom, they would have understood, having understood the scriptures, what he was saying. That he was saying that he is the, the bridegroom. And to really understand what he meant, we need to look back in the Old Testament. The people would have understood a context to this statement. So there's a number of verses, I think, to show you. Uh, in Isaiah, God had put himself forth as a bridegroom to his people. He had claimed in Isaiah that he was like a husband to Israel. He was a bridegroom. And there was going to be this wedding feast that would come up. And so he says in, I, in a number of places, Isaiah 54, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth, he is called. Isaiah 62, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And Hosea, he says, and, and in that day, declares the Lord, you will, be called, you will call me my husband, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice. In steadfast love and in mercy, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. So God is saying, I'm this bridegroom, and I'm coming for my people. And then elsewhere, Isaiah 25 speaks of this great feast that's coming, this wedding feast, really, as you read this and the rest of Scripture. This is to be understood as a wedding feast. It says this, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said in that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Jesus is when he's saying he's the bridegroom, he's saying, I'm this one that you are, have been waiting for. I am the one who's coming to fulfill these promises in Isaiah and Hosea and elsewhere. I am the one. I have come. God himself has come for his people, and the wedding feast has begun. This is profound, what he's saying in this answer to why you don't fast. He's not simply giving them a, an excuse or a simple explanation. He's saying, guys, the reason that my disciples don't fast is because the wedding has begun. The bridegroom has arrived, the promised bridegroom who's coming for his people. God coming for his people, and this multi-day wedding celebration has begun. That's why the disciples needn't fast. Fasting is an expression of longing, of earnest longing. It's saying, oh God, we long for you. Oh God, forgive us for our sins, for turning away from you. We want you. But we want you. We want your ways. We want your glory. We want your kingdom. That's what you are expressing when you're fasting, this longing, this earnest longing for the Lord. But once the Lord himself answers that longing for his kingdom, his peace, his glory, and so forth, there's no need to fast anymore. Jesus comes as the answer to this longing expressed in fasting. He has arrived. When, um, when I turned 30, uh, 
Peg threw me a surprise party. It was a wonderful surprise party, totally unexpected. I hadn't asked for it. I didn't even know it was coming. Um, and it was kind of a, a good time. And we had just moved to Maryland, uh, from here uh, to Maryland. And we didn't know a whole lot of people. We, I mean, we knew them somewhat. And so it was a great way to get to know people as well. We had this big party. And a lot of people came. Um, I didn't ask for the party, uh, but I enjoyed it thoroughly, just so that's clear. <laughs> it was a great party. But, but just for the purpose of illustration, what if I had asked for the party? You know, what if I had said, honey, I'd, I'd like to have a party for my 30th birthday. And I asked her for that, maybe some months out. That's, you know, maybe, that's okay to do, right? And then I, you know, a week later, though, I asked again, can, can I have a birthday party? And maybe I wanted this party so much that I asked for it every day for three months. Honey, would, could I have a birthday party? I'd like to have a birthday party for my 30th birthday. It's a big milestone, you know, going from, you know, 20-something to 30. Now I feel like a real adult. And actually, that, that, I did feel like that at, at that time. But anyhow, say I asked her every day. And, and then the day the party came, and I had this wonderful, glorious party. Would I keep on asking her for the party after that? No, I had the party. The par- it was answered. That's the same thing what, that Jesus is saying here. God's people fast because they're asking for the party. They're asking for the wedding feast. They're asking for the bridegroom to come and rescue them from this broken world and this life of sin to to come and and to bring this wedding feast, to answer these longings that are in God's people's hearts from the Spirit to come and bring salvation. They're asking. That's what fasting is. But Jesus comes on the scene now, and He's with the disciples. He Himself is the answer to that longing, and He's with them. There's no need to fast. He's there in the flesh, God in the flesh with them. And so there's no need to fast. He's come on the scene. He's answered their prayers. He's come to fulfill all things. He's come and now everything is new. That's what he's saying here. And that's why he goes into these metaphors about old and new. He's explained that I've come, I'm the bridegroom, and, and life as you've known it is now forever changed. And he does that through using these two pictures that were common examples really from the daily life of Jews at the time. First off, that if you have an old garment and it has a tear in it, and you want to fix that tear, and this is an old garment that's been washed multiple times, it's, it's shrunk down to as small as it's ever going to get, and if you take a brand new piece of cloth, like say a piece of wool or whatever, and you sew it on there, if you then go to wash it, it's going to shrink, and it's going to tear. It may, it may just tear that old garment right up. You don't use an old, a new patch on old clothing. Similarly, if you have brand new wine that's not fully fermented, you don't put it in old wine skins. They would use these skins, animal skins, and they would, um, they would have fresh skins, and they would put in it new wine. It was wine that wasn't fully fermented. And it would, as it fermented, it would give off uh, carbon dioxide. Is that right, guys? Anyone who, I think it's CO2, carbon dioxide. It gives it off in the fermentation process. Uh, and it would cause the skins to expand. And they had to be flexible. Those skins, over time, would get brittle, though. They would get brittle and stiff. So if you had new wine, you didn't put it in an old wine skin because what would happen is that brittle skin would just break and that new wine would spill out and the skin would be ruined. No, you, you apply new wine to new wine skins. Jesus is using this to explain this reality that just the impact of him arriving as the bridegroom. That now that he has come, it's new wine. He and his kingdom, Jesus and his kingdom is the new wine and the new patch. 
and the teaching and lifestyle of John's disciples and the Pharisees is the old garment and the old wineskin. Now, there's nothing necessarily wrong with the old garment or the old wineskin. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not coming to condemn the old ways. But he's coming to say that something new has come that's different, and the old ways of thinking, the old ways of living, the old ways of worshiping do not best accommodate the new ways. The new way is really the new covenant. Jesus has come with a new covenant, a new testament, a new relationship with God's people. Come in some ways to uh, actually to fulfill the old agreement, the old covenant, the old testament. That's why we, when we speak of our Bible, we speak of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Testament means covenant agreement. And Jesus has come to bring the new agreement between God and his people. It's come to fulfill and to some degree replace the old agreement. And so those who live under this old agreement, the Old Testament, are experiencing massive change. Because really all that they've longed for, all that they've known is coming to its fulfillment in Jesus as he is there on the scene. Now the old covenant was built around God's call to his people to come and follow them. In particular, God rescued his people from Egypt. They had lived in Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt. They lived under uh, the Egyptian system. They were oppressed. The Egyptians represented a people that lived apart from God and in, in enmity with God. And so God rescued his people out of the dominion of the Egyptians to himself. He, he did that in power. He did it through great miracles and the plagues and, and so forth. He, and then he brought them through, through the Red Sea, through the desert, to himself. He called them from Egypt to himself. He rescued them, and he called them to have a relationship now, at that point, with himself. We call it sometimes the Mosaic Covenant or the Old Covenant. And in light of God's grace in rescuing them, in light of them being God's people, he called them to respond to him and to love him and express that love through obedience to his commandments. So there were the Ten Commandments. These commandments that are all good, they're all expressions of God's goodness holiness and the right way to live. And there are other commandments as well in the scripture that he called them to obey uh, as expressions of faith, as responses to his grace. And then he provided a whole system for when they failed. A system of sacrifices. Of, of sacrifices of offering animals and shedding the blood of animals to pay for their sins against him. So he provided this whole system for forgiveness, for obedience, for relating to God. And, and God came to dwell in their midst in the temple. So it was this wonderful arrangement with God to have a relationship with him. But as we read the story, and as we understand this, all of this, all of this arrangement in the Old Testament was pointing forward to a better agreement, a better arrangement, something that was even more glorious, and something that made the old seem just... Um, second rate in some ways because it wasn't the same. It pointed forward to the new. So that's what Jesus is talking about here, that there's this new way with him arriving on the scene. The new has come. The old is gone. The old can't contain it. This old way that the Pharisees and John the Baptist live will not contain, will not best accommodate what it means to have Jesus in the midst of his people. Now, the Pharisees we've talked about, they, they took this old agreement so seriously that they added extra rules to it. 
Sadly for them, the, the old agreement was not just this agreement that, that it should have been, one of, of responding to God's graciousness and obedience out of a heart of faith and, and then living under the sacrificial system. They added and piled up all these rules because they basically missed the point and began to think that this agreement was built around their ability to be holy, that somehow they could force God to be kind and gracious to them by their obedience. That's called legalism. Sadly, it still goes on. This idea, we, we actually all slide back into it all the time, that we think somehow our relationship with God is built around our ability to perform at such a level that he's compelled to give us good things, whether that thing is heaven or just a prosperous life. That's not scriptural. Uh, and it's, it's really ridiculous because God is so holy that it's really an insult to think that we could somehow reach a level where he's compelled to give us something back. It's only mercy and grace. It's only ever been his mercy and grace, that he, he is merciful, he's gracious, and he responds to those who fall far short of his holiness in great mercy, and he provides for them for forgiveness. And, and holiness, obedience to commands, are not a way to get God to pay you back. Holiness, obedience to his commands, is a right and natural response to his grace to you. If you want holiness in your life, live in the graciousness of God. Live in the fact that he's given you everything, ultimately, in Christ. And when you get to that point, when you understand mercy and grace, then you'll start to respond in holiness. Then his commands will start to become good things, not things that are performance levels that you have to get above to get something from God. Well, the Pharisees had made that mistake. But even if they hadn't, even if they understood the Old Testament as it was intended, it still was not suited for the New Testament. It was not suited for the new way. Because Christ comes to fulfill all those things. All those commands, all those stories, all those sacrifices point forward to something better, to their fulfillment in Christ. In the book of Hebrews, it says it this way. Chapter 10, verses 1 and then 12 to 14. For since the law, that would be the, the Old Testament, a way to speak of the Old Testament. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The Old Testament, the old way, is, is looking forward to something better. It can't, really, it can't really satisfy what we need. And then it goes on to say, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, his own life given as sacrifice on the cross. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Wonderful, wonderful verse. Romans 10, 14. Christ came and offered up his own life. He came and through his life, through his death on the cross, through his resurrection and his reign currently and his return, came to fulfill all the promises of the Old Testament. He provided true and perfect atonement for our sins through his holy blood shed for us on the cross. And now he offers us complete forgiveness and love. Reconciliation with God if we would just simply turn to him and trust him. All that in Christ. He comes as the bridegroom to rescue us if we would turn to him. He comes as the one who fulfills all these things. And, and we, we don't need to go through religious rituals and so forth 
It's simply through faith alone. It's through simply saying, Lord, I turn from sin and self, I turn to you. It's by his grace alone. He has done it. He obeyed. He was holy. He satisfied all those requirements in the Old Testament perfectly. And then offered up himself as a holy sacrifice on your behalf. So that he could stand in your stead and satisfy God's requirement for men to be holy. Mankind to be holy. He offered up that life. And he paid for your sins, your transgressions, how you have disobeyed him, you and I. If you would simply receive it. It's wonderful. The bridegroom has come and has said, you have an open wedding invitation. I give it to everybody. Come to the wedding. Come and know me as the bridegroom. Come and put your trust in me. Come and receive forgiveness. It's simple. Just turn and believe. Just have faith. Trust me. And receive everything that I bring. He comes on the scene and everything is new. And the wedding feast has begun. God's wedding feast, the fulfillment of what He's promised, has begun. Now, it's a multi-day wedding feast. Because you might think, well, wait a second. Life doesn't always feel like a wedding feast to me. <laughs> there's times when it's hard. There's no feasting. There's suffering. There's trial. That's right. It's a multi-day wedding feast. But the bridegroom has come, and he has initiated the wedding feast. And we live in this time between the initiation and the completion of that wedding feast. In some ways, we get to taste. We get samples. It's like we arrived early for the wedding and, and hors d'oeuvres are out. And we can have some hors d'oeuvres. And we get to experience it. And I'm really looking forward to this thing. I can't wait till it kicks in. That's, that's what our experience is. But we live in this time between the beginning and the completion of that wedding feast. Why? Well, God has a lot of purpose, and I can't answer that simply. But part of it is he wants to prepare his bride. He wants to prepare his people. He wants us to become more and more a holy bride by his grace. And again, that comes as we recognize that he has paid the bride price for us. He's given his life. He's shed his blood for us. We are forgiven. We are made his own. And when we live in that truth, that wonder of grace, there's power in that to say, Lord, because you first loved me, now I love you. I want to live for you. I want to be holy. I want to love others like you do. I want to love the Father with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. He wants to prepare the bride. But he also wants to add more people to the wedding feast. That's part of what we're here for too. His desire is that every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every, every people out there have an open invitation and that people from each tribe are part of the wedding feast. There's work to be done. We, in a sense, work for the master of the wedding, the bride and the bridegroom, and our job is to bring more people to the feast. And so in this time, God is at work preparing the bride, inviting people to the wedding feast, and through that, glorifying His name and building our anticipation of what will come. As I read earlier in Romans 8, that the sufferings of this present world are, are nothing in comparison with the glory that awaits us. There will come a day when we will say, that was nothing. That was hard, but it was nothing compared to what I have now, compared to this wedding feast. And I'm so glad that he gave me power to endure and power to continue to, to love others and witness to the king and invite them to the wedding feast. We live in this time between. See, Jesus says in verse 20, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Then they will fast in that day. We live in this time where the bridegroom has come, but he was taken away. 
He was taken away not to stay away, but first and foremost, he was taken away by going to the cross. He was forcibly taken away from the disciples for the purpose of the cross so that he could purchase his bride to pay for her, to pay for us with his blood on the cross. He was taken away for that purpose, but then he rose again on the third day. The Father approved of what he did. He rose again, then he ascended, and he's in heaven, and he's awaiting the time where he returns. And in this time, we can fast again because though he is with us, Though we get to have hors d'oeuvres, though he actually dwells in us and amongst us by his spirit, the fullness of that is not here yet. And so it's appropriate for us to fast, to long for God, to long for Christ to return, to long for him to bring more people to the wedding feast, to long for him to prepare his bride and make us more and more like Jesus in character, in conduct, to long for him in these ways. But the longing is different because we have a foretaste. It is not the longing of despair, thinking, oh no, is this ever going to happen? No, it's the longing full of hope because he has already come. He has already come and died and rose again. He has given himself for us. If God did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he will not also with him graciously give us all things? He has already given his son for us. So our fasting is fasting of hope and anticipation and expectation. In a sense, it's saying, I can't wait. I can't wait till he answers all of these promises and finishes the work. I can't wait till he works in our church. I can't wait till he works in my life. I can't wait till he works through my life. I can't wait till he works in my neighbor. I can't wait till he works in my family member. I can't wait till he works in my coworker. Lord, would you come? Would you work? You've come to, to invite people to the wedding feast, so I fast to say, Lord, come and finish the work. Fasting changes because Christ has come. All our worship changes. It's full of hope. It's full of his presence. It's full of anticipation of him completing. We've already tasted, but there's more to enjoy. Christ has come. Everything is new in our worship and in our lives. As the band comes up and we conclude, let I just want us to think about some applications of this truth that, truth that Christ has come and everything is new. There are countless applications. And I'm sure the Holy Spirit will give you applications that perhaps have nothing to do with what I'm going to say, but just to think through some possible applications. First, ask yourself, are you living, am I living in light of the fact that Christ has already come and made all things new? That he has already come and offered up his life for me, and I now stand forgiven and accepted. That my fasting is not going to earn me anything. Ask yourself, do I live like that? Or do I live like a legalistic Pharisee, trying to somehow compel God to bless me by my performance? If we get the bridegroom has come already and initiated the wedding feast, it changes how we live. He's already come to make atonement for our sins so we can be forgiven. He's already come to invite us. We have an invitation to the wedding that is irrevocable, and that is ours. We are guaranteed by, by him, by his death and resurrection, through faith in him, to go to that wedding feast so we can live different. We do not have to live to perform, to compel God. We live forgiven and free. Do you live that way? Or do you live with a foreboding sense of falling short? some sense of I have to perform to get things to go right. 
Think through that. The bridegroom has come. Everything is new. Another application is to ask yourself, do I live in light of the fact that what Christ began, he will finish? Do I live in light of the fact that he's come for me? I belong to him. And I need not worry. I need not fear. But I can be bold in life because the bridegroom has come for me. I am his. And he's the sovereign one. He rules over all things. Do I live fearful or do I live in faith? When we get that he has come for us, it changes our perspective. One man said, I think, I can't remember, it was a missionary. I think it might have been John Patton. I can't remember who said it. He said this, I am invincible until God's purposes for me are completed. I'm invincible. In other words, my body will endure. I will remain here until God has fulfilled all his purposes for me. My life is in his hands. Jesus has purchased me. I belong to him. I needn't worry as long as he has work for me to do here. Do you live that way? If we get this, it changes us in these ways. Finally, if we get this, it gives us power to endure suffering. Suffering's real. And he makes it clear that if we belong to him, we're going to suffer like he did. Not to the degree he did, and our suffering doesn't atone for sin. But we will suffer in this world. It's part of the plan. Part of the plan to perfect us. Part of the plan to put on display the glory of the gospel of grace. But when we get that the bridegroom has come for us, we belong to him, he's coming back, it helps us hang in there. It helps us endure suffering. It helps us to await the final reward. For he will reward us as we suffer looking to him. It changes how we look at suffering. It gives us ability to deal with suffering. Without those sort of answers, suffering makes no sense. Our friends, our neighbors, do not have an answer for suffering. They are perplexed. We have an answer for suffering. The bridegroom has come for us. God has purposes in and through our suffering, and he's coming back for us. And he will answer all things, and he will reward us. Those are three among many, many applications of this truth that Christ has come. Everything is new. Let's just take a minute, perhaps in silent prayer, just to consider what God would speak to us in terms of responding to this wonderful news that Christ has come. Everything is new.